Hello, my name is Tucker Johnson, and I am your host today as we experience NIMSY Live, where we talk about the latest and greatest in translation, localization, internationalization, culturalization, and all that fun stuff global companies need to delight their international customers. On this program, we invite guests who like to have fun and have some value to add for our audience of globalization professionals. I'm always eager to provide a platform to those with a good story or a good data set. So let us know if there's any topics you'd like covered or guests we should reach out to for future episodes. If you haven't already done so, make sure that you are subscribing or following Nimsy Insights. We are coming to you live today on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, X, formerly known as Twitter, and maybe Twitch. I'm not even sure. But whatever your platform of choice is, make sure that you're following us and you will be the first to know when we publish new industry research or when we schedule new events like this today. Before we get started, I want to give a quick plug. I don't have anything queued up to bring up on screen, but our sister company, Multilingual Media, publishes a monthly magazine called Multilingual Magazine. And if you're not already subscribed to that and you like to stay on top of industry events, go to Multilingual com and you can check out the daily industry news that we're publishing online or you can hit that subscribe button and you can get the print version of multilingual magazine delivered directly to your doorstep or to your office waiting room every single month so make sure to check that out multilingual.com well without further ado today we are talking about you guessed it ai AI is a game changer in the global content management and a booster for multilingual content. It poses challenges and creates opportunities for organizations willing to add value with the right combination of people, processes, and technology. We will discuss today experiences to make this happen both from a decision marketing perspective and from the operational trenches. And today I am joined by industry, longtime industry veteran, influencer, seasoned, strategist, trusted evangelist, and passionate leader, Bruno Herrmann. He takes up growth challenges and generates data-driven demand at the convergence of product, content, and technology in various industries and around the world by designing and executing strategies as well as engaging with internal and external stakeholders. He has been recognized as a resilient change agent and dedicated business partner in the IT operations, communications, marketing, and product management roles he has been in. Bruno has also been a public speaker, panelist, and workshop leader internationally since 1999. Bruno, it's an honor to have you on the program today. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Tucker. Great to be here. Yeah. So we're, and thank you for your flexibility. And thank you for the flexibility of those in the audience today and that have survived, lived through, I think, two different reschedulings of this program. We were supposed to talk back in December. And now that we're in 2024, we're finally getting a chance to talk. So thank you very much for your flexibility. You're Everybody. welcome. I think it's a great topic. So yeah. yeah, fortunately, the topic is still relevant. We're talking about AI. And in my intro there, we talked about AI as, um, as it affects people, as it affects processes, as an, and it affects technology. And I wanted to turn it over to you today with the, kind of these three things. Um, where would you like to start, sir? Well, maybe to define what this title means, uh, because I know that uh, I chose this title to be as short as possible. But of course, it means different things, uh, and it may mean different things to different people. So uh, for me, um, and not just for me, hopefully, uh, it's very important uh, in operations when we talk about operations of AI, but in operations in general, to have the right combination between people, processes, and technology. I think that's, uh, I wouldn't say the secret recipe uh, for operations, but it's certainly a good piece of advice uh, to tell people that obviously technology alone will not uh, solve everything, just like people alone will not save everything. So this is the balance, and it's, it's a hard balance. It's hard to find, it's hard to define uh, between people, processes, and technology, uh, this has not been new in this industry. Uh, as you mentioned, Tucker, I've been in this industry for 30 years this year. So I started in 1994. I discovered translation memories and all these nice stuff back in the times. Um, and well, one thing that I've seen uh, throughout these uh, 30 years is that 
both on the client side and on, on the supplier side, because I worked on both sides. So I, I can really sort of compare sometimes, or most, most importantly, I can make the connection between those uh, two very important uh, sides of the industry. Uh, what I've noticed uh, is that, you know, throughout the years, uh, there has been one thing that has not changed is actually the challenge of finding the right balance between people, processes, and technology. Uh, and I, I call that, in my own terminology, you know, making sure that everything works in operations. Um, AI, of course, has made this challenge even more, um, should I say, amplified. Uh, I want to be optimistic today, so I'm not going to use <laughs> some of these uh, scary words like uh, destructive or, uh, you know, bad or whatever. I think AI is, as you said in the introduction, is transformative. Uh, for me, it's also productive and it's uh, elevating. I know it's a bit uh, shocking for some people when, they, when, I, when I tell them that for me, AI is going to elevate them. Um, but in my current experience or in my past experience, AI is not new in our industry, which is great because yeah. when you compare to other industries, discovering what AI is, we in this industry, we are, we are used to it. We know what we can do with it or we, what we shouldn't be doing with it. Uh, but still, of course, the, the, the sort of, uh, you know, the hype, as I call it, the hype and the excitement of last year has sometimes let some people uh, to make some choices or to make some decisions that were too soon, too fast, or both. So I think that this year, the way I see this year, and that's why this topic, as you said, is very timely for me. Mm. I, th I think that this year, will be, it will be a great opportunity to finally get out of the hype, get out of the excitement, and actually start operationalizing you know, AI with this balance between people, processes, and technology. And I think that, you know, um, it would be also a way to address some concerns and some fears that people might have in this industry about their future. You know, I'm a translator, what will I be tomorrow? I'm right. a project manager, I'm a vendor manager. What will AI do for me? Will it slide silently kill me or Will it just elevate me? As you know, I'm more on the second side yeah. of this of this equation. So that's that's for me the starting point. It is this evolution uh, and this balance, uh, you know, between people, processes, and technology. Uh, and uh, and I think I have a great quote that I sent you, uh, which I get. I believe you can share. It's a quote which is not from me, but which is from. Uh, a real influencer in uh, business administration. Um, and I like this quote, it's a bit long, I agree. But this quote for me, it's the best one I've, I've found so far to, 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 to explain and to convince that uh, we should embrace change uh, in operations, but beyond operations even. And there are some keywords in this quote, which I think will be part of our discussion tonight or well tonight for me and yeah. this afternoon for you which is uh you know new mindsets new tool sets and new skill sets and that's exactly what i mentioned it's about people processes and technology well let me just read the quote for the benefit of our podcast listeners oh, yeah. if they don't have a screen here so this quote from sadal neely who is a nailer fitzhugh professor of business administration at harvard business school and it says, we are entering the era of generative AI, which is tightly interwoven with digital work. This new era is set to transform job roles, apply pressure on salaries, and demand new mindsets, tool sets, and skill sets. Companies will need to focus on upskilling at scale and transforming their workplaces with AI advancements rather than fixating on traditional models of work. Yeah, so... It's the latest technology. This isn't the this isn't the um, first, and it's not the last new technology that's coming into the language services industry. You, you said something really interesting before we get on to the how it's elevating, you know, people, processes, and technology. Um, you said something really interesting. I'd like to talk a little bit more about, which is AI is not new for the language services industry. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What you mean by that? Because I think that's I. 
I agree with you, but mm -hmm. it, it's inter it's. I'd like to hear your input on that. Sure. Well, um, the best example I can uh, mention about that is the use in our industry of machine translation, neural machine translation. Mm -hmm. When you know uh, machine translation moved from a statistical model to a neural model, and I think this neural model of you know uh, automating translation. Uh, was an example of how artificial intelligence and what is behind artificial intelligence, which is data, could be leveraged. Because I think that's that's one way, personally, that I like to use to demystify or sometimes to explain uh, why AI in our industry is not new. Is because we've been, I mean, most of us, hopefully, have been facing, have been dealing with data content as data it's not new uh, of course today ai is requiring language data more than ever so today there is we need to do more we need to do better we need to do faster but uh, i remember when nmt was launched in our industry uh, this is when we started at a number of us uh, and i was at that time i was working in a, um, a data science company uh, a famous data company called Nielsen, and uh, I was already dealing with data, uh, they label data labels, uh, and I was translating and localizing millions of data labels. And when NMT came for me, it was just something a bit more than what I was doing. Hmm. And other people, when I remember when I was talking to my colleagues or my friends in the BI industry, Oracle um you know business objects and others uh, we were all saying yeah but actually we were already using textual data language data to you know produce other content which were platforms applications uh you know insights etc so i think this move from statistical machine translation to neural machine translation is a good example that we can even use to tell other industries that you know, uh, what is artificial intelligence? Actually, it is the ultimate or the more advanced use of data that you can consider to create, to produce something, which is a piece of content, which is an image, which is, you know, uh, sound now. Uh, but actually, it all starts with what I call in my own terminology, upstream AI. Uh, downstream AI is everything that is related to implementation and um adoption upstream ai is everything that is related to data and data is the blood of ai and we know that in our industry that you know if you don't have good data uh at the source upstream as i upfront you're not going to do anything really good right that's what i meant yeah hey, garbage in garbage out yeah, so, exactly. So, so your thesis is that we've been here in the language services industry, which primarily the listeners of this program are from the language services industry, of course. Um, we've been using AI in some form or another for a while. So yeah. in theory, our industry is pretty well positioned to not only leverage advancements in AI as, as they come out, but to also kind of take the lead and show other industries how it's done, so to speak. So we're kind of at an advantage there. Um, have you seen that happening? Is that is that happening in our industry? Yes, and, and actually, you know, for me, I see two causes of fear and concerns in our industry. One which probably everybody knows about, and the other one which I realized is probably not so well known in our industry, but now having myself been on the client side, I, I can explain why it's why it's a cause of fear. Uh, the first one is, of course, that now with AI, we've reached uh, an unprecedented un level of uh, data processing. So uh, what we could do before, you know, with, you know, segments of content, uh, feeding, training, machine translation engines, We've gone much further, much, much faster than that. And of course, that, that can put some people in their mind, at least, that can put some people in a position of weakness uh, because they realize that the machine is becoming better than themselves. Hmm. And before with NMT, humans were still considering the machine as 
not as good as themselves, or at least as good as themselves. And today, a number of people see the machine as becoming more intelligent, smarter than humans. And that's that's due to the to the to the to the speed of processing. That's due to the amount of data that we have now, which is not to be compared to what we had even you know five years ago. So I think that's the first root cause is the fact that people see the machine become too smart. Yeah. Not, you know, not just smart, but too smart. And there is another one which, you know, since I, I restarted my consultancy, I see that more and more often, and not just in our industry. I think it's applicable to other industries too. Artificial intelligence is seen as a game-changing technology that is more in the favor of clients than in the favor of suppliers. Because it's a technology that clients can implement internally with, of course, data scientists with the right knowledge, the right skill set. Yeah. To... See, you're already, I don't even have to ask you any questions because every question I think of, if I just keep my mouth okay. shut, you're already, you're already answering it. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I, no, I, I love this. Talk, keep going, keep going. No, and, 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 you know, and, and since, and, and, you know, I think last, last week I shared another article from another company. GP Morgan investing, I cannot remember how many million dollars in, you know, in, uh, in investing, of course, in, um, in the creation of language models and, uh, you know, in the interview of their CTO, the first uh, return on investment was, in their words, to actually remove suppliers from their picture. Hmm. And I think that that's a risk. And I'm very honest here with my all my colleagues on the client side and on the buyer side, but uh, on the supplier side, but most of all on the supplier side, because indeed that already now due to, you know, due to the, to the hype and the excitement that was not always value driven last year. Now, uh, some organizations have decided to, de to, to invest themselves in creating their own uh, language models uh, with their own AI engines. Uh, I worked in a company a few years ago uh, that was already doing that, but that's because in life science, this is something very, very important. Uh, and uh, that company was investing millions of dollars every year to actually create, feed, and train uh, an, an internal artificial intelligence engine. And our return on investment was actually to give less work to suppliers, sure. uh, which was called internalizing projects to software to say getting rid of suppliers and um and actually you know uh it's true that the more i think about it or the more i see it i see that if some suppliers are not embracing ai now at some point in time some of their clients might say uh thank you very much for the service guys we've been working for years together but now we have we the client we have invested in our own AI infrastructure, we mm -hmm. invested in our language models. We don't need you anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'm very honest when I say that because I'm working with two companies that are actually in the process of doing that. And when I was sharing the article last week about GP Morgan, it's the same in Bloomberg. Uh, it's it's most of all, of course, happening in the life, uh, not not in the life science, uh, but in the regulated industries because there are some good, good reasons for that. Uh, but I think for me. This is this should be a booster for, uh, you know, suppliers to say, hey, uh, it's time for us to embrace change and to position ourselves no longer as just language services suppliers, but as content or data services suppliers. And I think it's an evolution that I would like to see more and more in the industry on the supplier side is to sort of slowly, gradually leave the language services model and go to the content and data services model. So what should suppliers be doing then? I mean, if innovation, if I'm understanding correctly, and I kind of agree with it, innovation in this area is kind of going to be happening from, as it usually does, I, I get some hate for saying this, but innovation in our industry largely happened, I mean, like real innovation, like building new technologies and stuff like that, it usually happens on the client side. Um, why? Because the client side has budget. And the R&D budget of most LSPs is abysmally small. So it's hard for LSPs to do much. And all of that data that they have, it doesn't belong to them. It belongs to their clients, right? But anyways, yeah. I'm going off on a tangent here. Sorry. 
Um, <laughs> file your objections in the comments if you disagree, people. But um, what is, and Alfonso, I do see your comment. We're going to get to that. Um, what is there for LSPs to be doing in 2024? And because this train's moving fast, and I'm kind of a cynic, I think, when it comes to this industry, but I, based upon my observations in the past, like our industry kind of has failed to jump on a lot of trends at the right time. We're constantly playing catch up. And I'll support that with an example. I remember when COVID happened, that was our industry is remote by default. Like nowadays we talk about remote work like it's no big deal, right? But five years mm -hmm. ago, it was a big deal, right? Now everybody is familiar with Zoom meetings. And I saw that there was a huge opportunity for our industry to kind of take a leadership role and advising and kind of teaching other organizations how to go fully remote. Um, and I didn't see that happening. And for all of the talk about AI happening right now, I'm skeptical, let's say, and that at least from the vendor side, we're going to see that leadership actually happening. So what in your minds as an advisor to the industry, would you say vendors should be focusing on in 2024 before they miss the train? That That's a great question. And that's, for me, the most obvious question to answer when it comes to turning challenges into opportunities. And uh, actually, uh, I think you can show the second slide I uh, sent you. Uh, it's a slide that I created for a client. Um, of course, I, 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 I cleaned it up and I anonymized many things, but the point is that uh, on this slide, I was requested to present uh, to a board um, of a company that believes that AI should be in the hands of data scientists and IT people only. Okay. And I disagreed with that because myself, it, during my experience at Nielsen, which was a data science company, uh, half you know half of my work was done with data scientists. So. I, I saw myself that there was value to create by working between people uh, in data science and in localization or language services. Well, otherwise yeah. we're missing out on opportunity here because AI is not new. It is nope. newly publicly accessible. Let's just say like organizations have been playing around with AI for years and years and years. What happened in 2023 was ChatGPT launched and now mm -hmm. AI is in the public zeitgeist. The awareness has increased and it's become more publicly accessible um, and the options for um, just the individual consumer have exploded out there. So AI is not new and mm -hmm. I think one of the best things that happened in 2023 is that it's given the opportunity for you know whether you're a workflow engineer language data manager knowledge manager language experts domain experts team leaders it's given everybody an opportunity to kind of tinker around with it not just mm -hmm. the you know neuro language phd people out there mm -hmm. and and you know the the reason why i wanted to share this slide today is because i was challenging the view people who believed that uh, AI, generative AI, should be in the hands of data scientists only. And I even heard something that was just terrible, which is that, but Bruno, why shouldn't we you know, hire multilingual data scientists? Because they will speak different languages. Well, you know the story, so I don't have to tell you that. But uh, so I said, okay, let's consider AI-driven operations and technology, which, which has to happen on the client side. But everything that is in green for me should be opportunities for suppliers to really you know become this partner in content services more than just in translation localization because uh, obviously you know ai is living is thriving on data and language data uh, it's a huge topic so i'm not going to dive into that today sure, but sure. it's one of my it's one of my uh, sort of one of, the, one of the things that really keeps me busy and awake at night for the moment is language data is, of course, it's important. Everybody will agree on that. But language data doesn't come out of the blue. You have to do something to create that relevant, right. that usable language data. So you have a number of tasks that linguists as language experts can do better, like 
conversion, extraction, annotation, curation. I just mentioned here a few examples for this organization, uh, a few examples of how uh, you know, language people, as I would call them, uh, could really be be creating value more than data scientists. And data scientists have the expertise in, in data management. I worked with data scientists for the past 20 years. I respect a lot their knowledge and their skills, sure. but these people are data experts. Language industry is about language expertise. If you bring those together, you create what, in my opinion, is the best framework for AI and for generative AI for multilingual content. Uh, and today, no later than today, I had another discussion with the same organization and I was I was recommending them a change in vendor management. Okay. You know, instead of saying vendor management, I said, why don't you call your vendor manager vendor change management? Because you really have to change vendors from translation agencies to you know, what I would call content or data services partners. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's where the, the industry on the supplier side should find a number of opportunities to tell practically to go to clients and to position themselves as we can do more than just translating files, PDF and PPT, right. like we've done for the past decades. Now you, the client, you need language data, not just any language data. Again, clean, relevant, and usable language data. We are the expert in language. You, you have, you might have, some organizations don't have, but you might have uh, your expertise in data science because you have a team of data scientists or IT people. And let's bring those two forces together because that makes sense. Everyone has a role to play in that. But of course, if the industry doesn't go to this uh, you know, content services and content data services direction, then of course there is a risk that some organizations might say either we, we, we just give it, we just give everything to the data scientists people, or we just hire a few linguists in house, which yeah. is by the way, what life science, what the life science industry in some cases, uh, and we just focus on, you know, minimizing, uh, the work that AI doesn't do, which is enriching and supervising the language. So I think that's where the opportunities are, in my opinion, in my experience today, this is where I see some uh, very uh, immediate, I would say, opportunities. Yeah, so I mean, that very much kind of answers the question is LSPs, language services providers, translation companies should focus less upon translation and more on co upon content management, which we've, they've always been content companies. It's just with a focus on translation. And a lot of LSPs have been rebranding like this for years and years um, because mm. they don't want to pigeonhole themselves as just a translation company or just a translation agency or localization. Um, and they're focused more on the overall content management at of which translation is of course a part. So, um, I, I want to get to these questions here. But I also want to make sure that people can hear me. And when I go to that screen, people can't hear me very well. So let me, um, all right, I'm just going to read it off the small screen here. Um, we're going backwards. Um, Kegetan Malinowski, sorry if I'm, I can't read the name very well. What do you think is the future of TMS? Our TMS is still a thing. So while you do that, I'm going to go fix the, the chat screen. Our TMS is still a thing, Bruno. Yeah. Well, uh, the answer is yes for the moment because, I mean, I, I see two reasons why a TMS is still, uh, you know, relevant today. The first one is that in many organizations, as I said, uh, uh, content is still managed, you know, um, in, uh, in files. So there is still based on the transaction of files uh, and on the allocation of roles and responsibilities uh, to the different people, you know, linguists, uh, reviewers, etc. So it, it's not going to happen overnight that the transition from file-based content management to data-based content management is not going to happen overnight and certainly not in, in large organizations. Of course, for startups, it might be, it might be a little bit different, but uh, so that's that's the first thing. The second reason is because uh, obviously 
there is value uh, there is value capture that I see in TMS, uh, which is that uh, you have in TMS, uh, of course, in the in the best TMS on the marketplace, you have this um, this uh, I would say this uh, core. Uh, value of creating and allocating roles and responsibilities. And I see that uh, for some organizations, again, probably the, the large organizations or the medium-sized organizations, I see a value to start using the TMS, no, not in the traditional way, but starting, you know, uh, including the new roles and the new responsibilities mm. uh, and actually facilitating uh, or softening the transition from what I what I just said, the file-based approach to the data-based approach. And I think then the TMS becomes a tool that is going to, uh, you know, transform, to use our keyword today, uh, that's going to transform the way people work gradually. And of course, ultimately, when you, when you see some models that are just based on, <clears throat> excuse me, on AI, then of course, you know, once training and feeding AI is going to be up and running and is going to be really controlled from upstream to downstream, then of course, uh, TMS might become uh, something, uh, you know, no longer useful, but uh, it can become also something that, you know, some teams uh, would like uh, to keep for their own uh, mm -hmm. use, which, which, which I, I would, I would, I would, I would say it can be, of course, uh, a concern as well because you know i said in the beginning that it's about inclusive ai and inclusive ai is to make sure that everybody in the organization is using not just affected by but is using ai according to the business objectives mm -hmm. and i know from my own experience now that there are some there are some departments there are some teams where ai is very um very uh very attractive i would say uh but there are some other departments like legal sometimes communications where people see uh again they they, they see a risk because they watched the i robot movie with will smith yeah. and they believe that it's going to be they're going to be a super a super intelligence you know yeah, over yeah. them telling them what to do but okay so tms is 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 a transition for me uh, is going to be a transition tool to to answer the question very good very good all right i think i got the the chat working up here so go back to alfonso do you think more and more translators will move to post editing roles or will translation still be its own thing talking about high tier premium levels of the services very common question out there what's happening yeah. to translators yep that's a question i was expecting to be honest yep. um uh, i would say that uh, the the people or oh, sorry the linguists who are post editors today will probably have the softer way to or the easier way to becoming language supervisors uh, as I, I like this title language expert uh, because obviously they are already used to you know uh, not creating sorry not translating from scratch and they are used to you know correcting enriching improving content so uh translation uh from scratch, uh, which is so, uh, that's what I understood as translation as, as uh, its own thing. Uh, for me, uh, that has not really a future. And even in regulated industries where you might say that I mean, regulated industries are, all, I by the, are by definition sometimes skeptical or even reluctant to adopt those new technologies because they don't want to uh, create a big bang in their companies and they have a lot of compliance to to care for uh, so I would say that translation uh, non-AI driven translation might still be its own thing in some parts of regulated industries like the defense industry like uh, the finance industry but gradually AI is going to become like the baseline mm. and from AI you know you will have different roles like post editors today you will have some language supervisors and it's not a, it's not an easy job i would like to to spend just one minute on that because i think it's mm -hmm. important post editors and language supervisors are really creating a lot of value yeah it's not just about changing a, a comma or changing a word uh you know uh, 
today, even today with post-editing, you have different levels of post-editing, light post-editing, heavy post-editing, and you have to train people on how to do that well, because you don't want to engage people uh, to do some heavy post-editing if light post-editing is just good enough. So post-editing, just like language supervision, will need, and again, a new skill set, which is to be able to adapt the level of enrichment, the level of uh, improvement to the, what the client wants or what the, the type of content requires. Um, uh, for instance, if you consider like, you know, clinical trial content in the life science industry, that's most of the time heavy post editing because you cannot just, you know, one comment or one number that is wrong can create a lot of trouble and can even kill people uh, in hospitals. Mm -hmm. So uh, that could be, and, and of course, I remember when I was leading a team in, uh, in, in a big life science company, uh, we were insisting on having post editors who could do this heavy post editing uh, enough to create the level to 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 reach the level of quality and the level of sensitivity that was required probably for other industries i don't know for uh, uh, maybe the travel industry which i don't know so well uh, they might be might be less critical uh, because of course you know the 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 sort of uh, the, the requirement the requirement might be you know, to the post editor, uh, you need you, you can spend two hours or four hours to post edit that content, and that will that will be it. Uh, but I think there is a real value created by post editing and language supervision, and it's not just uh, you know like uh, like a professor just correcting uh, you know uh, uh, correcting some work from his pupils. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's a whole skill set. And yeah. uh, thank you for bringing that up because post editors deserve the respect that sometimes people think of post editing as like, oh, it's just a cheaper form of translation, but it's a completely different skill set and absolutely critical and adds a lot of value, as you said. Yeah. Um, back to the comments we've got from LinkedIn, and this is actually Anna Burns. Uh, senior program operations and product manager. While we know that AI translations will continue to improve, we've seen some info with a few small data points that implies that that human reviewed AI translation is lower quality human review. Uh, that human reviewed AI translation is lower quality human reviewed human translation. Any thoughts on this? So, essentially, what about quality concerns? Um, the the data. There, there are data out there that shows that human-reviewed or post-edited AI or machine translation um, content is lower quality. Thoughts? That, that's, that's a great point. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it shows that humans can do a lot of good and it can sometimes do a lot of harm <laughs> because mm -hmm. uh, obviously some content, and of course, assuming that the level of data effectiveness, sorry, quality, I... I I usually don't use the word quality. I use the word effectiveness. Uh, but if the level of data quality is really high in the beginning, so as I said, if it's relevant, usable, and um, and uh, well, uh, up, up to date. That's that's the word I was I was searching for. Uh, then you know, um, of course, uh, there is always a risk that. Uh, a not well trained and a not well uh, educated human reviewer can actually spoil what the machine has done well hmm. just because the data the level of quality or the level of effectiveness of data is really high and it's the case in some industries that i know like life science or uh, business intelligence uh, because there is a lot of work being done to make sure that data is really effective it's clean relevant etc so human touch might in some cases be a risk <laughs> well it's you know uh, what is really human quality because humans make mistake all of the time and this is a point i've yeah. made before and it's a point i'm sure yeah. i've stolen from some other person in the industry which is that humans make mistakes so when we talk about machine translation reaching human parity well what if what if eventually machine translation gets to the point where it's better than human parity right no absolutely and that's that you know the way for me to address this uh because i i had to address it with uh, a, a big project i was on last year is actually to define what content effectiveness or content quality is 
because then it's a way to train or at least to measure the performance of the post editors or mm. you know the the human the human reviewers and make sure that if uh, you know I'm, I'm not going to sort of uh, uh, tell the stories of my life but uh, I I tested a number of, in the past uh, I tested a number of post editors and to be honest with them to be fair and balanced with them I always told them what my or the you know the the effectiveness indicators uh, from my company were, and uh, I said, okay, this is, these are the these are the focuses for you: fluency, accuracy, consistency, etc. And of course, I could then measure if, for you know, for a certain type of content, if a human editor or a human reviewer was actually in line with the level of effectiveness that mm -hmm. was required. Or if it was not, right. so sometimes uh, to address this sort of situation or to avoid this type of problem, it is a way. Uh, there must be a way to test and to, or at least to measure the performance of human reviewers and make sure that they are not doing more harm than good. good. That is that is my own experience with the the risk of having reviewers, and it's even it happened even before uh, AI was yep, was on yep. the table. Fair uh, point. So yeah. All right, I'm gonna try my best to get lots of questions. Very engaged. Thanks, chat, for being so engaged today. I'm gonna try to get through all of these here. Um, Manuela Simonetti says, "How do you take existing people with you?" My impression is that it is becoming a total different, totally different business. And uh, how I see this is, um, if we're asking for a completely different skill set in the language services industry, whether we're talking about translators and becoming post editors or something new, whether we're talking about program managers, whatever, how do we change and evolve as an industry without leaving the humans, the individuals behind? Okay, yeah, thanks for clarifying because I was wondering what people meant here. I think uh, that's what you mean, Manuela. Correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Is it if it's decision makers or linguists or okay anyway, uh, yeah. So if we talk about indeed the the people who are currently in the industry, uh, who have a certain role like linguist, like mm -hmm. project manager, like vendor manager, I think that um, uh, my own uh, perspective and my own experience. So I don't mean to say that it's going to be applicable to everyone. Is actually to again to really focus on the added value of these roles because you're you're right. New skill sets must be justified by added value or increased value. And the way I take those people to some some new uh, promised land, as somebody told me yesterday, <laughs> uh, was actually to tell them: Yes, today you are, let's say, a linguist, and you are post editing. I know the machine is becoming smarter every day, so don't feel threatened as such by the machine, but make sure that you keep the machine work for, working for you. And it means that post-editing indeed cannot stay as it is because the machine is becoming, is becoming smarter. Mm -hmm. So the framework is changing. You cannot just yourself, as people, you cannot just stay the same while the whole framework is changing, hmm. technology processes. So think about what you did yourself. Maybe you, when you moved from translating to post-editing, you changed your way of working and you accepted it. If you are post-editor today, it means that you accept the value of post-editing. So it means that, you know, just to increase the value with the machine that is becoming smarter, you can keep your expertise so your language expertise will not disappear you keep it but you amplify it you make it more you you make it fit for purpose yeah so we're you not talking about and, is ai yeah, yeah and, and manuela says so are we talking about translators becoming data scientists i run an lsp and many people do not find the job of data analysts interesting and I don't think we're talking about telling all translators, hey, you need to become a data scientist now. 
Um, it's not, you know, it, it's the here in the U.S. It's kind of a meme where you say learn to code, right? It's one of the presidential candidates during the last election cycle said, well, the coal miners just need to learn to code, right? <laughs> we're, we're not telling anybody that they need to learn to code here. I think it's just a matter of um, s small, well, maybe not so small, but incremental changes to the way that they work. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, you're right. We don't, we're not going to ask, to, I mean, linguists or uh, people who are in the language industry to become data scientists. As I said before, I strongly believe in joining forces between data science and language science. Specialization. Yes. Right? Specialization. Let the data scientists go data, data scientists yeah. and let the and, linguist mm -hmm. linguate. <laughs> and, 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 and actually, it's a very good point because I see more and more, and I remember last year I was working uh, for uh, a client that uh, recruited uh, data, uh, language data curators and language data annotators. And actually, uh, when I was looking at the profile of these people, uh, most of them had a linguistic background. They were either linguists or translators or <clears throat> even sometimes project managers. And they became data, language data annotators or language data curators. But in language data annotator, you have the word language, right? So what, what those people who are transforming themselves will become is of course they will become they will stay first of all they will they will they will stay in their shoes as language experts but they will make a step toward data science by becoming by, by dealing more with data curating them annotating them and data scientists will make the same step towards linguists because they will understand that even if they speak multiple languages they will never be as good and as fast to annotate and curate data than linguists or ex-linguists. So I think well, the way I see it, and you know, I, I spent 15 years in, 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 in a data science company, so I, 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 I believe in what I'm saying here, uh, that there is a way to really, because the framework is changing, to really uh, sort of you know, find more synergy between data science and language science, language expertise, uh, and uh, of course, it's not to say that data scientists must, must become linguists because they will not become linguists. Right. It's not, it's, you know, uh, either way, uh, you know, it's not up to uh, linguists to become data scientists. It's an equally uh, absurd I, I, proposition yeah, to it, ask data absurd. scientists and, to become linguists as to ask linguists and, to become data scientists. Yeah, and, and to, be, to be honest, I personally, I don't like binary uh, statements or, you know, black and white situations. I think it's all gray. Uh, so I think that, you know, you need to really, uh, if, well, if you are a leader, if you are a decision maker, you need to really look where the value of people is. And of course, we know that data science has value, language expertise has value too. Uh -huh. All right. Another question from Kayatan Malinowski. Um, mm -hmm. Thanks for all the answers. One more for you, Bruno. Is this the end of the loc paradigm? Create content in, in say, English and localize into multiple target languages? Many customers are asking, why should we localize when we can create original content in target languages for a fraction of the cost? And this is a question that I love um, and I ask myself frequently is, what's the need for localization? If I'm using generative AI to generate my English marketing campaign, why would I send that English marketing campaign and pay translators or post editors to translate it when I can just use the same generative AI to create a marketing campaign that is not only translated, but culturally relevant for 12 other markets at the same time? That's a great question. I totally agree with you, Tucker. And I would say that it's absolutely true uh, that generative AI is going to replace localization in a number of cases. Um, it's already the case, by the way, in some in some organization, because I'm working on, on a project now where content, it's actually a, a multinational organization, and they stopped actually localizing some content from their U.S. headquarters, and they asked their local entities to start using generative AI to create their own local content. So I, I, I'm, I'm facing a, an example, a real-life example now as we speak. But the good news is that even if the use of generative AI 
is going to replace a number of localization cases or localization opportunities, you still need this generative AI in French, in German, in, in all languages to be extremely accurate, relevant. So you still need linguists or language experts to make generative AI in multiple languages work properly. Uh, so that's the good news about generative AI sometimes replacing localization because if generative AI in French is replacing, uh, you know, localization for France, it has to, at least at the very least, it has to be as effective as, you know, as, um, as localization is or was. So to reach that level of effectiveness, you will need a lot of input and a lot of expertise from the language industry to actually reach that level of effectiveness in data that will train and feed generative AI in French to be able to say, now we have reached the same level. Yep. We can say, well, we don't localize anymore, but we still do need a lot of work in terms of language expertise. Yeah. So until the machines become our overlords, we still need local linguists to be the overlords of the machines and scoring it, training it. And yeah, it's a whole different debate and conversation if the machines will ever get to the point where they can train themselves. Some would say they already are, right? I, but mm -hmm. uh, rabbit hole I don't want to go down today anyways. <laughs> um, excellent question here from LinkedIn user. So if I, let me see, can I get their name? This is, yes, Ilona Fritsche-Gintere. Um, how will LOCPM, how will the role of the localization project manager change in the context of AI? We've been talking a lot about linguists, of course, mm -hmm. um, the heart of our industry, the, the translators, um, but what about localization project managers? Yep, uh, well, in the, in the example I, uh, I mentioned before, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so in that case, <laughs> in that case, uh, for that specific organization, I saw project managers going into two different directions, workflow engineers to actually make sure that the supply chain for AI, so including, you know, everything that is upstream. So, and there are a number of new tasks. I mentioned a few of them, annotation, curation, uh, segmentation, etc. So that, you know, the whole supply chain for AI be, stays safe and stays efficient. So that's really the first direction, so becoming workflow engineers or process engineers. And the second one uh, would become, uh, in some cases, uh, you know, domain experts. Because in that case, you, as project manager, you are used to, well, at least in, in, in some companies, in some organizations, you are used to handle content for certain industry or for a couple of industries and then you as a project manager you can extend your project management skills to actually become the sort of uh, domain expert that is not specifically linguistically oriented but that is becoming more uh, you know process oriented for instance i will give you an example uh, in uh, again in the life science industry sorry it's my preferred industry so i cannot i cannot stop using examples from that industry project managers can become real domain expert in, for instance, in uh, linguistic validation, which is a very specific process in life science. It's not just validation as you can understand it in other industries. Linguistic validation is a, is a very complex process uh, and it's part of all uh, operate, operating procedures in life sciences. But what in that case, project managers could become domain experts because they know the steps that Linguistically speaking, and you know, uh, functionally speaking, the steps that a process called linguistic validation has to go through. So, again, uh, two directions from from my perspective, from my experience: one going to the workflow expertise, and one going to uh, the um, the domain expertise. I'll put. I'll put. Um, question from this one's from Ivona Budzinska. Uh, if you pay peanuts, if you pay peanuts for post editing a high quality uh, for post editing a high quality data, then it's obvious that no specialist linguist will want to touch it. It will be post edited by someone unqualified who will introduce errors without a doubt. And Ivona, 
I don't see a question in there. And I kind of agree with that. I, I'm going to, but I like this comment because it raises a question for me um, that I thought of when I read your comments is, so pricing model for the language services industry. <laughs> I know we've got five minutes to go in this podcast. Do I, do I want to go there? But um, we've been doing per word or some sort of iteration on per word pricing for a long time. And I think per word made a lot of sense um, back before the age of TMS. Um, TMS came on the scene. We adapted, we iterated on the per word model to include fuzzy match structure, um, stuff like that. Machine translation post editing kind of threw another monkey wrench into the model my stance on this is that the industry needs a revolutionary change in the way that we price the work done at the translation level however i don't think the industry's ready for it meaning no one wants to be it, it's so ingrained in the way that we do it and i'm not saying it makes that makes it a good thing but i i just don't see that revolution happening anytime soon um what do you think bruno um, what's it going to take to change the way that we compensate translators in our in our industry which is really everything else is built upon that because translators mm -hmm. are, or the linguists i should say are at the heart of the industry yeah uh, i agree with you tucker i think that well as you said the word the the cost of word is really rooted in this industry and, mm. and you know, uh, it's very difficult. And, and to be honest, since I, you know, I worked on, on both sides, supplier and client, I always remember that clients always found that weird that, you know, some, some intellectual words, uh, sorry, intellectual work could be, you know, uh, priced per word. So, but okay, that's just a, a side comment. Um, I think you're right. I think it's too early, but it will be needed. It will be needed for two mm -hmm. reasons. Mm -hmm. It will be pushed by clients. Clients will, back to their old statement, you know, they were already criticizing the cost per word when it was, when content was in files. So content was, you could you could see, you could see the, the unit, the currency in a file. You could see that a word file had 200 words, okay? It's so now we're moving to data, data, makes the the notion of words more blurry I well now say. we're talking about tokens yes. what the what the hell is a token yeah, well and how much and does that, it cost is... and how many what <laughs> <laughs> that that is that is really where you know that that's that's the reason why it's going to be pushed by clients because i see that or already in the past the cost per word pricing model was I would say sometimes questioned by some clients and but that it was accepted because it was tangible in the way content was managed you can forecast but now for words yeah. in tokens you're right words are disappearing and i don't know and that's not to do the right word but words are becoming something much more vague when yeah. it comes to you know language data we're no longer talking about how many words are there in the token it's it it is an amount of content. We don't talk about the unit. We're talking about an amount more than than a unit. And the second reason why I think it will be necessary, but not immediately uh, ready for it, it's because um, <laughs> there will be again probably coming from the client side, but also I think from already some big players in the industry, the top ten players, I would say, is the players. They are pushing for a model where, you know, uh, there is an agreement with the client to to evaluate the cost uh, based on, you know, not just the amount of content, but also the complexity of content and the effectiveness of source content. So there would be more factors coming than just the word, which has been uh, a word is just a unit; it's a yeah. currency. Uh, and I see that there is more and more, there are more and more uh, intentions or discussions to include more factors, more um, drivers in the pricing model than just a unit. And I think that this would have happened even without AI, to be honest. Yeah, uh, agreed. I agree with you. All right, well, one last question. I'm going to keep you a couple minutes over here. But Manuela Simonetti has been... Go, we've been going back and forth with her here. Her last question here is, mm -hmm. um, 
Oh, let me pull it up. Sorry, guys. I need to be quicker than this. Um, so we're talking about, you know, translators leveling up their skill set or linguists learning new skills, not necessarily becoming data scientists, but, you know, branching out and stuff. Um, Manuela says, thanks, Bruno, but how do you explicit the value of this work? Annotation, post-editing, language in general is considered a low-value job. She means to a client. So as LSPs, Manuela runs an LSP, right? As LSPs are going into these new AI-adjacent um, services or AI-driven services, how can they best sell that? for lack of a better term, how can they best explain the value? Because value, value, you made the comment yourself in that these are very value-added activities. Mm -hmm. How do we explain that to a client that might not understand the value behind it? Okay. Well, well in one minute, <laughs> it's going to be tough. Um, we can go over a little bit. Uh, okay. All right. Yeah, don't, don't kick me out, please. I won't. <laughs> Just in the middle Promise. of the sentence. Um, now, what, what I would say to Manuela is that, first of all, the way I explicit, the way I demonstrate the value is actually to tell stakeholders or decision makers what would happen without this value. So there is the cost of doing the right thing, the cost of doing the wrong thing, and the cost of doing nothing. And I usually compare these three costs. And when, of course, decision makers say, uh, say to me, well, Bruno, I want to have the best value because it's value for my own clients. Then, of course, the discussion the discussion becomes a bit easier. But still, uh, there are people uh, who are not understanding, you know, uh, the value uh, based on these three approaches: uh, the right thing, the wrong thing, and nothing. But uh, in that case, uh, I usually do the test. I I I run the test, and I did it uh, several times last year with language data. I said, okay. Uh, you don't want to pay too much to create relevant data. You don't want to pay too much to annotate, to curate, etc. Let's let's make it happen. Let's do the test. Do the test with different levels of effectiveness of data. Then, of course, low effectiveness was, of course, for me, low value. And I can prove that by linking the output, linking the, the actual effectiveness of the content in, uh, let's say, in German or in French, uh, with people who are in on the client side, on the client of the client side. So actually say, okay, what is in terms of content experience, let's not forget about content experience, uh, what is going to work well in terms of value? Where is the where is going to be the value uh, for the client during his experience with the customer, uh, with the content, I'm sorry. And, you know, by using different levels of quality and, of course, using different levels of investment as well, level of uh, of uh, of cost uh you know value becomes more obvious because i don't know many companies that accept to delight their customers with low value personally but that's my short answer very very well put and for those of you who we just barely got through all of the questions today i actually turned off the comments i'm not looking at them thank you thank you everybody who was so engaged in the questions for those of you that have more questions go follow bruno on linkedin um he's very active over there posts lots of good stuff he's a good follow um on linkedin bruno any closing closing thoughts before i wrap it up today no thanks a lot Tucker, for having me thanks again for uh you know giving me a chance to touch on just touch on this uh, important topic and again i wanted to convey a message of optimism today which is that the industry is there uh but of course the clients are there too so keep, keep let's keep in mind that the money comes from customers and i would say that uh th 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 there is a future out there uh but of course it will require just like in the past it will require some efforts to be value driven and to be inclusive so let's do this amen Thank you, Bruno. All right, ladies, gentlemen, chat, we are out of time today. If you enjoyed this NIMSI Live experience, and join us next time, next week, when we're going to have one. It's actually not even published yet. Um, but go follow, um, like, follow, subscribe, all of that stuff, NIMSI Insights, and you'll be the first to know when our newest episodes are scheduled. I appreciate our guest today, Bruno Herrmann. I appreciate my colleagues here at NIMSI Insights doing all of the hard work so I can have these interesting conversations. And I appreciate... 
all of you in chat with the questions, comments, and especially criticisms. Until next time, cheers.